Come on church, how are we? Everybody good? Good. Merry, Merry Christmas. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, we're going to be in Acts chapter 24. We're the only church in the world that does the Christmas service out of Acts chapter 24. Isn't that great? But that's where we are, uh, so that's where we'll be, and it'll have something to do with Christmas here in a little while. Um, and in fact, <clears throat> one, of the, one of the great dangers of Christmas is obviously that you get so caught up in the trappings and the commercialization of Christmas that you miss Jesus. And so I don't want you to miss Jesus. We're going to talk about him a lot. But quite honestly, I don't really preach against the commercialization of Christmas because I kind of like it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm into Rudolph. I like Santa Claus. I like that he brings me good gifts. Uh, but I deserve it because I'm good. Um, that was something that bothered me my whole life growing up. I thought, man, Santa Claus is not very observant because he's not paying attention to my year. But still, every year we would get all kind of awesome gifts. And, and some, of, um, <clears throat> some of my greatest memories growing up as a kid are all about Christmas. You see, I grew up in Dillon, South Carolina, and we love Christmas more than you do because what you people do, y'all just decorate, like put lights on your house just at Christmas time. But my people, my people put, year, put, put the lights up year round. I mean, I can remember pulling into my uncle's house and he still, it was like June or July, and he had his, you know, those large colored bulb Christmas lights on his chain link fence and they were full on plugged in and raring to go in July. And I just remember pulling in, and my dad looks at me and says, son, you can't hide money, right? And that's, <laughs> that's my people. <clears throat> and, then, um, and then the way we rolled Christmas at my house is uh, about the day after Thanksgiving or so, my dad would go to the Christmas closet. See, most of you didn't have a Christmas closet, but in my house we did. And you'd open up the Christmas closet, and there was the fully decorated Christmas tree from last year. Just, we just left it up. It was, it was an artificial tree, obviously, but he would just reach into the Christmas closet, get the fully decorated tree out, and just go and put it in the corner. And it always took a little while because, you know, we only decorated the side that you could see. And so I know some of you crazy people decorate all the way around the tree, and uh, that's ridiculous. So we just did the side you could see, so you kind of got to line it up just right. Remember the tinsels? We put the little tinsels on there, just freshen that bad boy back up, plug her in, and then booyah, it's Christmas time, right? And then the good news in that, if it's, you know, if it's, if it's March and you need a little holiday spirit, you could just peek into the Christmas tree closet and there it is all year long. So, so we did that. And then my dad, um, he's an in- interesting guy. He, uh, he, he would like cry poverty all year. I mean, he had us convinced that we were broker than broke. You know, we'd be, I'd be at Walmart and be like, Daddy, can I get this Hot Wheels car? It'd be 50 cents. He'd be like, I don't know if we can afford that. You know, I thought, God, boy, things are rough at our house. But then at Christmas time, he would just lavish us with gifts. I mean, he'd get full of Christmas spirit. And I'm talking about Santa Claus showed up in a major, major, major way. When I was 16 years old, I got a 66 Mustang for Christmas. Yeah, praise the Lord, all right? So if you're 16, your parents should probably get you a Mustang. That's what I'm saying. Uh, And I'll never get out sitting there. You know how you you ever notice your Christmas pictures are awful, right? Just terrible because everybody's sitting around in their underwear all just terrible looking, opening gifts, and they're awful. But anyway... Praise God, Facebook didn't exist when I was growing up. So we're, we're sitting there opening our presents, and I got the last one, and he hands me this little box, and I thought it was going to, it was a ring box, so I thought it would be like a class ring or something. I open it up, and it's keys to a 66 Mustang, and he had it, it was hidden behind my grandma's house. Santa Claus thought we lived at my grandma's house, so we always had to go there to get our, our Santa Claus, and so, man, I'm excited, and I run out and get in my, my 66 Mustang and just put two racing stripes right through my grandma's yard of the month if I'm just peeling out, right? So that was a good one, but then my favorite Christmas memory of all time was this. Uh, I was in the sixth grade, and, and my brother was like in third grade, and we stayed in this bedroom upstairs, and um, I'm, I'm the early riser Christmas guy. 
uh, I don't know about these people that sleep till like 8 o'clock on Christmas morning, not me. I'd wake up every hour from about 3 o'clock on, you know, kind of on tiptoe, peek around the corner, see if Santa Claus has been there. And so it was about 4 a.m., and I was in the sixth grade, and I'd tiptoe down the, down the stairs, and I'd peek around the corner, and there, is, there are two Honda dirt bikes in my grandma's living room, right by the fireplace. There's a, there's a Honda 80 and a Honda 50. 50 is for my little brother, and I had an 80, a dirt bike, all right? So parents, you probably ought to get your middle school kids' motorcycles. I think that's the moral of the story. But I was so excited, man. I came down, and I, I go and wake up my brother, and I come back down, and I just couldn't stand it. So I just got on it at 4 a.m. and just said, yang, 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 and cranked it up right there. <laughs> In Mert's house, and it filled up the whole living room with smoke. And then her bedroom door comes opening, and she comes stumbling out, like with a robe and that little kind of old lady helmet thing they wear to sleep in, you know, and just comes out. And she's, and she's saying something to me, and I'm like, I can't hear you. Santa Claus brought me a motorcycle. I'm going to just keep going. So it was awesome. But it really didn't have anything to do with Jesus. The whole, my whole growing up. Now, I, I will say this that when I became a Christian, I began to read through the New Testament on. On who God is, that God is a father that wants to love and lavish love upon his kids. My dad did paint a very good picture of being a loving earthly father that helped me understand my loving heavenly father. But in all that Christmas stuff, we, we just it never, it never made it to Jesus. And one of the things that, that I'm really concerned about for us as a church, and what we're going to see here in the text, is you could be so close to Jesus and miss the whole thing. Like this Christmas. You could be so close to the manger and miss the Savior. In all your activities, so I'm not saying do less or buy less, all right? Go to all the parties, wear your ugly Christmas sweater, buy all the presents you want, get me something if you want to. I will gladly receive it in the name of Jesus, okay? Come on. It's all fine. But in all of that, don't miss Jesus. What we're going to find here is, is Felix, who we're going to talk about today. He was so close. He was so close and yet he missed it. One of the reasons we do Christmas in a box, one of the reasons we do this, to give this to you for free, is so that wherever you are this Christmas season, whether you're traveling or in your home or wherever, that you could spend some time in making sure that you get focused on Jesus during this Christmas season. So, Acts chapter 24, verses 22 and following. Um, <clears throat> I want to just read the text, because then I'm going to break it apart uh, verse by verse. And so... Uh, and then we're going to come back, and here's what we're going to look at. Felix, remember last week, Paul lays out the gospel for Felix, and so what we're going to see this week is we're going to see Felix's response to the gospel. And his response to the gospel is it looks like he's being drawn to the Lord, and he gets pretty close, but Felix never crosses that line into faith. And there's really four big stumbling blocks that Felix has here that I think are pretty common in this service, in this church, and especially in churches all over Jacksonville today. So let me read the, the, the text, and then we'll, we'll break it down. It's uh, Acts chapter 24, 22 and following. It says, But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, he put them off. That's Paul preaching the gospel. He put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but should have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. And after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul, and he heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present, and when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And at the same time, he had hoped that 
money would be given him by Paul. And so he sent for him often and conversed with him. And when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcus Festus, which is a lovely name if you're looking for a child's name there, okay? Probably worked better for a girl, but that's just lovely. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So what you're going to see here are four kind of hang-ups that Felix has. Even as he's moving and listening to the gospel and he's close to Jesus, and yet he misses it. And so, again, this is like your Christmas warning. Your Christmas warning that don't be, don't be close to the manger and then miss the Savior that's been born unto us. So we're going to walk through it verse by verse. Verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them all, saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes, I will decide your case. You see, so Felix knows about Jesus, but he doesn't know Jesus. Felix knows about Jesus. He has a rather accurate knowledge of the way. So if you were to ask Felix, who is Jesus and who is God and what did Jesus do on the cross? And he could tell you all the stuff. He could pass a doctrine or a theology test. But the problem is, <clears throat> is that he, he knows about him, but he doesn't know him. Folks, today in Jacksonville, Florida, thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of people will show up to church just like they always show up to church. And they know about Jesus and they know about baptism and they know about communion. And they know when to stand up and when to sit down and when to raise your hand and when to not raise your hand. And how to give a tithe or an offering. And, they, and they've been to Sunday school and they've been to VBS and they know about him but they don't know him. And it's a, it's a scary thing. As a pastor, it is frightening. It's frightening to see people file in and out of church and not know God. And, that, and this, is, this is Felix, kind of what he's doing. He knows about Jesus, but he doesn't know Jesus. And Jesus himself has some, has some severe warnings about people that know about him but don't know him. In Matthew chapter 7, these, these are some of the scariest verses in the whole Bible. In Matthew chapter 7, 21 to 23, here's what Jesus says. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That means on the day of judgment, there will be some people surprised that they're not going to heaven. That they're standing in line feeling awesome like they've got a ticket. And then they're going to get to the front of the line and they don't have the ticket. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And was his will that you would surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. That you wouldn't just know about him, but you would know him. That you wouldn't just pursue religion, but you would have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then, verse 22, on that day, many, not a few people, okay, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Let me just confess to you, if I'm doing ministry alongside somebody and some fella casts out a demon, I'm thinking he's probably going to heaven because I've never cast out a demon and I've tried, all right? I pray for you to be undemon possessed sometimes and then come back the next week and see you again and go, well, no, still possessed. It didn't work. I've never cast out a demon and I'm not going to have you raise your hands because some of you people will be like, oh, I do it all the time. God bless your ministry, all right? I've never... Cast out a demon. I sent a seventh grader home from camp one time. That's the closest I've ever come to casting out a demon. <clears throat> and I preach, but I, I, you know, I don't know if I'm a prophet, but there are people in line that aren't getting in, and they prophesy in your name, they cast out demons in your name, and they do many mighty works in your name. I don't know what your resume for the kingdom is, but that's a, that's a strong resume, is it not? Verse 23, and then... 
And then will Jesus declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That it's not about what you do for the kingdom. It just comes down to this. Do you know him? I mean, know him. Do you know, or do you just know about him? Are you thinking, well, obviously, I'm going to go to heaven because I attend church. I've been baptized. I have my first communion. Um, I, I sponsored Compassion Kids. I've been on a mission trip. I've done all the things. Look, you can do all that stuff and still not know them. What I'm afraid of, especially in our Bible Belt community that we live in, is that there's a lot of people that have been inoculated with the gospel. They got just enough gospel that they think they don't need Jesus. And it's frightening. It's terrifying. And so Felix, <clears throat> Felix has a head knowledge of Jesus, but he doesn't know him. Like, he doesn't have a relationship with him. And it's crazy. It's crazy to believe the right things, but not put your trust and faith and hope in him. Now, right belief is extremely important, but it won't save you. It's about surrendering your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And some of you say, yeah, but I believe. Well, congratulations. Look what the Bible says about your belief. James 2.19, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You believe the right things. Congratulations. You're qualified to be a demon. <laughs> they don't know him. And to, and to stay there, to stay in that like intellectual, intellectual knowledge of God without that surrendering your heart to God, it, it's like Facebook stalking your wife. It just doesn't make any sense. It's like you can get all the information, but, but you lack all the intimacy. Look, I don't want to Facebook stalk my wife and just know where she's been and what she's drinking from Starbucks and some pictures and stuff. No, I want to know her, like a deep, abiding no. I want to know her like the Bible says no, like Adam knew Eve and they bore a son, okay? You can't do that on Facebook. And it's, and it, it's, it's ridiculous if, if that's how you were to pursue your wife. It's horrifying if that defines your relationship with the Lord. That it would just be here. That it would just be more, more information in your cranium as opposed to just to actually knowing him. And so that's what Felix does. <clears throat> but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off. Are you putting the Lord off and yet you know all the right things in your head? Verse 23, so he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending his knees. <clears throat> so you can see that Felix has a positive encounter with Paul. He likes Paul. He appreciates the message that Paul's bringing. And if you've ever wondered how Paul could make disciples and plant churches and write half of the New Testament from prison, it's because of this. It's kind of like house arrest and, and it's not super strict here. Verse 24. And after some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul, and he heard him speak about faith in Christ. So you can see here that, that God is, is beginning to woo Felix, that Felix is interested. He doesn't even believe it all. He's not ready to surrender his life to Christ, but he keeps showing up. And not only does he keep showing up, but he's bringing his wife with him. That's you, that's some of you, that's your story. You've been here for two or three or four weeks, and you, and you get mad at me because every week I call you a wretched, black-hearted sinner. And let me tell you this. It's worse than you think. <laughs> you You are. You are your own worst enemy. You're your own worst enemy. Nobody's lied to you more than you. Nobody's broken more promises to you than you. I mean, it's, it's, really, it's really worse than you think. You're not just bad, you're dead. And then you get mad. I can't believe him. Who does he think he is? I'm never coming back. And then you go get your wife and go, get in the car. Where are we going? We're going to church. All right? And you come back 
And you come back, and you come back, because like Felix, there's just something about it that you know that you need to hear. That's where Felix is. And so he gets his wife, Drusilla. And i got to tell you about Drusilla. Also, a beautiful name, isn't it? Any guys named Drew will name your daughter after you? Drusilla, you should, you should think about that. So Drusilla was a teenager. Felix was not. So that's a little bit scandalous. Drusilla was married to another guy, and Felix paid this, this guy to, to sort of infiltrate Drusilla's life and, get, and, and talk her out of leaving her husband in Egypt and come and being married to Felix. And this is Felix's uh, third wife, and so that's all scandalous. But he wants to get her to come and hear the gospel and hear Paul. And so over and over and over, he says, he, he summons Paul, and Paul comes in. Here's what Paul talks about. It says, it says, to hear him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Now, you know what Paul's preaching here? See, we can know what Paul's preaching because of all the, all the stuff Paul wrote, like in Ephesians and Galatians and Philippians and all those other books. And so Paul is preaching about faith in Christ Jesus. He's probably preaching what he would say in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So if Paul's talking to Drusilla, he's, he's saying, listen, it's not just about keeping the Ten Commandments, because you can't keep them anyway. It's not about, about moralistic deism. It's not just try to do what's right. And once you, once you can do what's right, then you'll be acceptable to God. And he's probably talking to Felix about it's not just about believing the right things. But do you know him? You've got to surrender your life to him. And so he's preaching to them about what it means to have faith in God. He's talking about grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Not morality, not education, but life is in Christ and in Christ alone. Verse 25, it says, and, and he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Now, that looks like three different things, but it's really just the gospel. It's just three ways to, de- to describe the gospel. He reasons with him about righteousness. Now, this will help you. Whenever you're doing Bible study, anytime the Bible uses the word righteous or righteousness, just, just think right standing before God. That righteousness isn't about doing a bunch of good things, because we, we, we don't really do a bunch of good things. Righteousness is about a right standing before God, and the Bible says that none of us are righteous. Nobody. I mean, think about the best person that you can think of. Your nana, all right? Even she has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible does. It says that there are none righteous, not one. That, that when we sin against an almighty God, it requires an everlasting punishment. And in his goodness, he is just and he is merciful. But all sin will be judged. And all of us start out unrighteous. We have chosen to turn our back on God. And so what do you do about it? What do you do about the unrighteous condition that we find ourselves in? Because the one thing that we can all agree on, regardless of what you believe or how you grew up, regardless of what religion you're in, it doesn't matter. All of us agree that there's something wrong with our world. Everyone would look at this world and go, there's something's broken. And then all the different religions and philosophies and, 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 and ways of thinking, they're, they're all just answers to what do you do with what went wrong. And so, as Paul is reasoning about righteousness, what he would say is that you can't earn your own righteousness. There's not enough good that you could do to earn a right standing with God. Because even if from this day forward you were perfect, what are you going to do about all the unrighteousness that happened yesterday and the previous days? That sin, that debt must be paid for. But God loved you so much that he sent his son to live that righteous life, to live that perfect, holy life, 
to pay the debt on the cross that you owed, that he didn't have to pay, but he chose to, to endure the full wrath of God, and he got the consequences for our sin, and you get the no consequences of his righteousness. He would say it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made him who was without sin to be sin for us, that we would be made his righteousness. The Bible call, or theologians call that double imputation. That our sins are imputed to Christ on the cross and his righteousness is imputed to us. That we get what we don't deserve and he got what he didn't deserve. That we get his righteousness and he gets the wrath that we deserve. And then, therefore now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Christ paid the debt in full. And that is how we're made right or in right standing before God. Theologians would call it substitutionary atonement, that Christ paid the price on our behalf. One of my favorite illustrations that Paul uses is in Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is talking about spiritual warfare. And maybe you've heard about putting on the full armor of God, and Paul says, stand firm then, and put on the full armor of God, the helmet of salvation. And then he says, the breastplate of righteousness. It's a picture of imputed righteousness. Have you ever seen the Roman breastplate? And I love talking about this. Because I just love the, the example the Holy Spirit's given us. Have you seen the Roman breastplate? I don't know who modeled for that, but that brother was on some P90X or something, wasn't he? I mean, he looked good. Got those just perfect pecs and just six. He didn't have like a six pack. He's even got all the little like riblets on the side. You know, it just all, just boom. And so when you put on the Roman breastplate, it covers over whatever you got going on under here. And so if I were to put on the breastplate of righteousness, you don't see all that jiggles. You just see pecs and abs, and you're like, man, that, that guy's been trained in the core or something. And it's a picture of righteousness. That when you surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, you put on Christ's righteousness. And that when our creator, king, and judge looks at you, he does not see that wretched, black-hearted sinner because righteousness has covered that, and he sees the perfection of his son, Jesus Christ. And so this is what Paul is reasoning with him about, about about how to be saved, about how to be made right with God, and self-control. Now, self-control is one of the, it's a fruit of the Spirit. There's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so what he's talking to him about here is, it's not an outside in. It's not you've got to try harder, do better, get control of yourself. It's when you surrender your life to Christ and you put on that breastplate of righteousness, the spirit living inside of you as we abide in Christ begins to work its way to the outside and we get fruit of the spirit that begins to pop up. So it's not try harder, it's stay close to Jesus and Christ in you begins to transform your life, not from the outside in, not behavior modification, but it's a heart change, it's a soul transformation. Can I tell you why we just preach the gospel over and over and over and over? Because I do not have the power or the ability to change anything in your life. Now, I believe, I believe I can keep your attention and I do believe I can motivate you. At least to the point that you get to the parking lot. And then it's over. And I know it's over because if I preach a sermon about honor your brother and sister, you're still flipping each other off in the parking lot because you're mad, all right? So I got no power to change the heart. But Christ does. And that's what he's talking to him about here. About a fruit of the Spirit. So he talks to him about, about righteousness, about self-control. Which, if you hire a guy to go break up another marriage so you can marry the girl, you got self-control issues, right? So that's what he's talking to him about. And the coming judgment. And he'd say, hey, look, Felix, I, I know you think you don't answer to anybody, but there will come a day. 
And you will stand before the Most High God and He will judge you. Because He is just and He is holy and He is right. And He will either judge you unrighteous, and if so, you will pay eternally by being separated from Him. Or if you have bowed your knee to Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you will be judged as righteous and you will be an heir of everything that is His. And so what he's, what he's hammering home here is the gospel. And so it says, he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And Felix was alarmed. Felix was alarmed probably because people didn't talk to Felix this way. You know, he was the governor. He could have people killed and do whatever. And here's Paul just shooting him straight. And Paul knows he doesn't have time to, to, to be all lovey-dovey about this. So he just, he's just going straight at it. He, he also probably, like many of you, know it's true. That whenever you hear the gospel and the Holy Spirit's working in you, you just hear it different and you go, uh-oh. You know what, I think he's right. As much as I want to be defensive and, and, and say, well, here's why I act this way, you know, you know it's true that you need to repent and surrender. And then I think, I think that he's interested. I think Felix is, is kind of leaning in close. And, but here's what he does. So Felix was alarmed, and he says, go away for the present, and when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. So the first, the first problem that Felix has is it's just an intellectual knowledge and not a heart relationship. The second problem that Felix has <clears throat> is that um, he, he doesn't think the timing's right. You see, Felix kind of has that but first attitude. Yeah, I believe everything you're saying, but first, I've, I'm, I want to do some other things. And then one day, when the opportunity's right, that's when I'll surrender to Christ. Look, I hear it all the time. that There are, there are people in college, and they go, hey, listen, I believe all the stuff. But first, you know, I've kind of heard about college years, and there's some stuff I want to get done here. In college. And then he will be, he'll have more to forgive me of later. All right? And, and then I'll surrender. Or, um, uh, yeah, I believe, but I'm just going to put it off right now because the opportunity is not right because I'm single. And when I get married, that's when I'll, like, settle down and follow Jesus. Or, but first, we're going to have kids. Or, but first, and, and let me tell you, Felix never finds the opportunity. If you read the extra biblical literature on the life of Felix, Felix dies without ever finding the opportunity to surrender his life to Christ. And so, some people, they just it's a head knowledge, not a heart knowledge. Some people, like Felix, are waiting for some kind of perfect opportunity, or waiting, as soon as I get this question answered, as soon as I don't have so much doubt, as soon as this happens then, listen, the opportunity is now. Life can begin now. Eternity, eternal life is not... What happens when you die? Eternal life is that moment that you surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. But Felix says, hey, go away for the present. And when I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. Verse 26, and it says, at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. You see, the third problem that Felix has is Felix is trying to, trying to make a kind of bargain with God. Felix is doing the, hey, God, if you will do this, then I'll do that. And people do it all the time. People come to God and say, if you'll heal my cancer, if you'll answer my prayer, if you'll give me the job, if you'll fix my finances, if you'll fix my marriage, then, then I'll be your follower. <laughs> and let me just, who do we think we are? Who do we think we are? Listen, you're in no place to bargain with God. Did you know you cannot simultaneously surrender to Jesus? And try to bargain with him at the same time. Those things are mutually exclusive. He is Lord God Almighty, sovereign, maker of heaven and earth. And God is not insecure. 
He'll be just fine without you and without me. I hope you know that. I hope you know that God Almighty does not have an eHarmony account and He's hoping that somebody will like Him and connect with Him. But, th- but so many times that's how we treat Him. As if, as if God is some kind of insecure uh, junior high girl just hoping we'll ask Him to dance. No, that's not how it, that's not how it works. In fact, do you know it's God's grace that He won't bargain with you? Because if He would take the bargain... If he would say, okay, what's, what's keeping you from me is you're not getting something that you want. Well, let me give you something that you want so that you'll follow me. Th- then who's God? That means you're Lord. And he's serving you. It's just a Christian form of idolatry. It's the problem with the prosperity gospel. It's that any time, well, any time you, you put an adjective in front of gospel, it, seeks, it, it ceases to be the gospel. The gospel can stand on its own just fine. doesn't need any adjectives. But, but what begins to happen is you begin to say, okay, God, you owe me. If I do these things, if I pray this prayer, if I give enough money, if I sow the seed, if I whatever, then you owe me this stuff, and you begin to worship the stuff. And it's God's goodness that he won't play the bargain game with you. Now, we serve a good dad that wants to give good gifts to his children. But you know what the best gift is? Him, him, and for some of you, he'll bless you because it'll draw you to him. And some of you, what you would see as a blessing would be the biggest curse in your life because it would drive a wedge between you and your heavenly father. And so we're in no place to bargain with God. You know, Job, in the Old Testament, Job, he tried to, he kind of tried to call God out. You should read the book of Job. Just read the first few chapters to get a little context of who Job is. And he was a righteous man and, and how he lived. And then it all fell apart. You probably know that. You can skip all the middle. He's just got all these cruddy friends giving bad advice. And then at the end, Job tries to bargain with God. Job, um, in the Hebrew, it says, Job puts God on trial. Like, God, you sit right here and I've got a judgment against you because you're not treating me the way I deserve to be treated. <laughs> and then... And then I love it. You should read like the last, last three or four chapters of the book of Job. And God, God gets a little angry at him and says, Job, stand here and take it like a man. And he begins to ask him all these rhetorical questions. Where were you on the morning that I hung the stars in the sky? And you know what you hear from Job? Not much. Because he's like, oh yeah, I wasn't around then. And where were you when I caused it to lightning and I caused it to storm? And where were you when I was deciding um, what, what part of this earth would be ocean and what part would be land? In other words, God's like, who do you think you are to try to bargain with me and come against me? They're, you can't even lick your own elbow and you're going to come against the almighty God? You want to try it right now, don't you? You want to be like, wow, I am limited. Yeah. And so... Felix is like, as soon as, as soon as, God, as soon as you do something for me, maybe then, maybe then I'll follow you. By the way, Felix's name means happy. Happy. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? Because that's the God he was serving, was his own happiness. And so he kept thinking there was going to be a payday. Verse 27, and when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcus Festus, um, Actually, he gets fired. It's interesting, too, that Paul reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and judgment. Um, Felix gets kicked out of office because of an unrighteous act that, he, that he, he killed a bunch of this Jewish uprising, and he wiped some people out, and it was very unrighteous, and that he lacked self-control because that, that relationship with his wife, I mean, there was a lot of drama, and it got him in a bunch of political trouble, and then he sat under judgment, and he got fired. And so they bring in this other guy, And then on his way out, it says, And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. 
So some of the, the stumbling blocks, it's um, that it was intellectual, you know. He knew about him, but he didn't know him. That, that, that he, he had that but first mentality. Yeah, I believe all this stuff, but first, I've got to, you know, I kind of want to do some things for me. That he was trying to bargain with God. God, if you'll do your part, then maybe I'll be your follower. And then the last one is he was more concerned about the approval of man than he was the approval of God. That he was more concerned about what people thought of him than him surrendering his life to the Lordship of Christ. And so, here's the point. Here's what I want to ask you. Do you have the faith of Felix? And when I mean faith, I really mean faith in yourself or lack of faith. But as I look through these four characteristics of Felix, I know there's some people in this room right now, and and you fall into one of these categories, that, that maybe you have an intellectual assent to the things that are true of God, but you don't know him. So what I would ask, do you know him? Do you know him as Heavenly Father? Have you surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus? And if your answer is yes, if, if you would say, yeah, I'm a Christian, then what are you doing to stir your affections for the Lord? You see, we are creatures of our environment. So a part of what we do here this morning in church together, the reason that we, that we study His Word, and particularly the reason that we sing Him songs, is because there's just something about being in that environment that stirs your affections for the Lord. What do you do that stir your affections for the Lord? It's not just about another Bible study or another activity. And it might be different for you, but what do you do? You see, it's why I take my wife on dates. Just to to cultivate that environment where it stirs our affections for one another. And and, and I'm going to tell you, when I'm really trying to, like this past weekend we went on a date, not the best example, we did wings and Ron Burgundy. So that's not like the most romantic ever. Some of you good old boys, it'd be a step in the right direction, all right? But... But we like, I like to go to Three Forks, and they have this little private room. You've got to know somebody to get in there, I think. But I, we go in there, and this little private wine room, and there's like a bazillion wine bottles all around. And we sit in there, and nobody can interrupt us, and it's just us. And then we order wine. I order red wine, expensive, cab. Why? Because it's romantic. And then the lady comes out there, and she uncorks it, and she pours you a little bit, and you get it like this, and you swirl it around. You know why? Me either. But that's what Lars does. <laughs> That's what I do. Just swirl it around like this. Then you smell it. I have no idea what I'm smelling for. Just, and then you take a little sip. And I don't even know what qualifies as a keeper or not. Okay, I don't even know what I'm doing. But then every time I'm like, oh yeah, that's, that's really good. Got no context to even compare it to. We're just cultivating that environment. Order a steak. And just eyeball to eyeball. Just talk about Whatever. And you know why we do that? For the nutritional value? No. No. Do you think I even do it for the steak? I love it, but no. Absolutely not. I'm there to continuously cultivate that relationship with my girl. The same thing needs to be true about your relationship with Christ. Read John 15 when you get home. Abide in me and I will abide in you. Abide is a Bible word. It just means stay close. Do whatever it takes to stir the affections for Christ in your heart. If that's worship music, another one for me in Jesus is, is to, to be in that tree stand, to just be in the woods, watch the sunrise, just feel the dew fall, just to be in that environment. It just, it's just good for my soul in Jesus. What about you? Is it just an intellectual pursuit of knowledge or do you have an abiding relationship with him?
<clears throat> some of you here are like, are like Felix in that you're saying, okay, I believe that stuff, but I've got to fight the, I want to find the right opportunity to surrender my life to Christ. Look, it's like the right opportunity to have kids. If you ever wait to the right opportunity, you'll never have one. You just, now's the time. Now's the time. And so some of you are waiting to surrender your life to Christ. What are you waiting for? It's like the man that's starving to death that's putting, putting a meal on hold because he wants to hold on to his hunger. Let me just assure you of this. That God is not withholding anything good from you. That's not what he wants to do. He's a good dad. And once you taste and see that the Lord is good, then you'll say, what in the world was I waiting on? But don't be like Felix, somebody that just, that just wants to put it off. Or are you trying to bargain with God? Are you trying to bargain with God? Saying, okay, God, you're going to come to me on my terms, and here are my terms. If that's you, you have a lordship issue. That you are your own Lord, and God's not just going to come in and worship you. But that you have to surrender and if you've got doubts and questions and fears and anxieties and, and unanswered questions, awesome. Pick them all up, cross over the line of faith with them. And for the rest of your life, God will love you anyway. And you can work out all those questions and all that doubt and all that fear. But, but, but God is not in the bargaining business. Or some of you are more concerned about what they think than what he thinks. And listen, if you're in college or in high school, from my perspective, it looks crazy. Listen, high school students, you wake up every day and you were so concerned about what a group of people think about you. And in, in, in four or five or six years, depending on your aptitude, I don't know how long it'll take you to get out, but in, in the next few years, <laughs> that group of people that you care so much about, you'll never even see them again. I mean, ever. Ever. And you think, oh, we're going to be best friends forever. No, you're not. No, you're not. Everybody's going to move away all over the place. And then you're going to see them at a reunion, at a 10-year reunion, and you're going to look at them and snicker. And when you see them at your 20-year reunion, you're just going to cackle in laughter and be like, wow, I can't believe I even cared what you thought. College students, same thing. Same thing. You care so much about what your fraternity brothers, sorority sisters think about you that if we could bronze them, you would worship them as your God, your idol. And I, and just, I promise you, I promise you that, that in a, just a few years... You'll never even see them again. And from my perspective, it just looks ridiculous. Ridiculous to pursue the applause of man when the almighty sovereign God wants to deem you approved, not by what you can do, but by, he, by what he did on the cross. And so if, if you pursue, if you pursue um, the approval of mankind, it's an exhausting pursuit. It's an exhausting pursuit. But when you surrender your life to the Lord and stand approved by the only one that judges, then I'm telling you, there is freedom and there is life there. So what about you? Do you have the faith of Felix? Is it just a head thing? Are you delaying? Are you more concerned about what other people think? Are you trying to bargain? Or are you ready to surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Because here's what's scary about Felix. Felix was so close. Felix was so close. Felix was presented the gospel by the Apostle Paul, and he missed Jesus. What I'm afraid happens at Christmas time is you go to all the stuff, go to all the parties, go to all the church services, do all of those things, and you're right next to the cradle, and you miss the Savior inside. And so is that you? Today, I want to give you the opportunity that this Christmas will be the Christmas that you surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ. And then, after we do that, I'm going to give you the opportunity in just a second. We're going to celebrate Holy Communion. 
And you know why we decided to do communion this week? It's because um, if you grew up in church, you've heard this before. When Jesus commanded us to do communion, he said, he said, and often as you eat of this or drink of this, do so in remembrance of me. That a part of what the Lord's Supper is about is to help us remember Jesus, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. That even amidst of all the chaos and the craziness of this season, that we would remember Jesus. Well, it starts, if you don't know him, by surrendering your life to the Lordship of Christ. That by what Christ did on the cross, if you surrender your life to him, say, Christ, I'm no longer Lord of my life, you're Lord of my life. Then you put on the breastplate of righteousness. Your sin is paid for in that moment. And it's not just that. You're not just forgiven, but you're also adopted into the family of God. That our sins are forgiven at the cross, but we're adopted in at the resurrection. And that we become co-heirs with Christ. And then you can know God as your heavenly Father. Would you please bow your head with me? If you're here this morning and you are ready to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, would you signify that surrender by raising your hand? That you'd raise your hand and say, Lord, here I am, I surrender. Now, there's not a magic prayer to pray, but you say whatever words communicate from you to your Heavenly Father that you don't want to be Lord of your life anymore, that you surrender your life to Him, that you believe and trust that what Christ did on the cross was sufficient to pay for your sin, and that you confess Him as Lord. Our Father in heaven, God, we thank you and we praise you for the cross and for the resurrection. God, we thank you that it's not just right belief that saves us, but it's a relationship with you. God, I pray for any man, woman, student in this place that, that, that's just waiting on that right opportunity would understand the opportunities now. God, I pray for the folks in this room that have been trying to bargain with you, God. I pray that they would surrender. They would surrender and that they would know the best bargain they could make is to, is to surrender to your lordship because you know everything. You love perfectly and you demonstrated your love for us in this, that while we were yet still sinners, that Christ died for us. And Lord, I pray that there's no person in this room that would wait, but that we would be constantly surrendered to you. God, for the followers, for the, for the disciples in this place, God, would you help us by the power of the Holy Spirit, not just try to do better and be better, but continuously put ourselves in environments that cultivate our relationship with you. We pray it in the good, strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And at this time, we are going to celebrate communion. And and Jesus took the bread on the night of Passover, and he held the bread up to his disciples, and he says, this is my body, broken for you. And as often as you eat of it, do so in remembrance of me. And on that night, folks, they had no idea what he was talking about. And then the next day when he goes to the cross and they see his broken body, they begin to understand that he, he was being broken for our sin. And then, and then he held up the cup and he said some scandalous things. Because these were good Jewish men that had done Passover every year of their life. And instead of sticking with the script, Jesus says, this is my blood, which represents the new covenant or the new testament. The Old Covenant or the Old Testament was a covenant of law, and the New Testament or the New Covenant is a covenant of grace. And he says, as often as you eat or drink of this, do so in remembrance of me. Now, as the ushers uh, let you out, you're going to come, and and people are going to um, serve you communion. They're going to say something to the effect of, this is the body and blood of Christ broken and shed for you. And so I would just ask that as you're in line or as you're sitting there, that you would take some time to just focus on, 
on Jesus. And let me just admit this too. We can't figure out an efficient way. Like Jesus did the Lord's Supper with 12 dudes. It's a little more difficult with 1,200. And as we've tried to figure this out, I've just come to the conclusion that the cross was not efficient either. It was a mess. And communion's a mess. So please don't let the messiness of getting in line and get back to your seat and all that take your eyes off Jesus. But everyone's invited. You, take, you rip off a piece of the bread, you dip it into the cup, you take communion, and then if you'd like to come to the altar afterwards and just focus on Jesus, I hope you'll come.